It's been said that journalists report the first draft of history. Certainly, it is true that reporters witness a lot of stuff before the rest of the world knows about it. And a lot of what we see does not immediately make it into news reports. Sometimes notes stay in our reporters' notebooks or in the margins of our brain until one day something happens that makes those observations relevant. That's kind of how this episode happened. This wasn't something originally on our list of areas to investigate. And so, unlike many of the other episodes where a lot of open records requests helped us figure out where there are gaps in data, this episode is not like that. Instead, it came about in a conversation with one of this country's top investigative reporters. She has uncovered some of the most important stories in higher education in the last several decades. So, how's it been going? You know, I've been doing a mix of stories related to COVID-19 and then... Paula Levine is a reporter with ESPN's Enterprise Unit. And initially, I called her to talk about privacy rules in Title IX investigations, something that we'll get into a bit later in the season. But as we were talking, she said... They made reference to the portal. This thing that she had witnessed several years ago while reporting on a story about university contracts was filed away in her reporter brain. And, and he was sort of laughing. He said, we have ways of, of keeping that stuff away from you, you meaning the media. And I'm like, well, what exactly do you mean? He was being very coy, but saying, well, you know, we don't really have possession of it in the sense that we actually have it that we could release to you. And when she recalled it to me, it immediately triggered my reporter brain to sift through my files. Of course, I thought. Of course, this makes so much sense. This is how universities keep big investigation findings under wraps. Like at the University of North Carolina a decade ago, the largest cheating scandal in the history of NCAA sports. So many documents never surfaced. Of course that's what was happening. And as Paula pointed out, it's now also happening at North Carolina State, now amid the investigation into college basketball, where possible recruiting violations led to an FBI investigation. NC State received a notice of allegations from the NCAA this week. And where the local newspaper, the News and Observer, recently wrote about how they could not obtain certain emails and text messages that would otherwise be public record because... Many documents were only accessible on a protected NCAA portal. NC State is claiming, well, we don't actually possess this information. We allegedly can't download it, can't copy it, can't print it off, so therefore we have never taken possession of it, and therefore it's not public record. And um, I, and I think, you know, and obviously other media would argue that's, that's, that's just not the case, it's disingenuous. Basically, the NCAA's investigative documents are shared with the university only through a secured portal. And so when reporters asked for them, NC State, State says, says, well, you know, even though we have access to them in this portal, we don't technically have them, so we can't give them to you. So NC State is able to see them without taking possession of them. And the benefit of that is they get to know the information without having to share it with the public. That's their claim. School officials entered into a non-disclosure agreement involving records in the portal, even if those records came from the university. They've asserted that access to this portal is subject to a non-disclosure agreement, and, and therefore that 
you know, that also prevents them from releasing it. This is pretty clearly a violation of open records law. They've collaborated with the NCAA to conceal potentially damaging information behind a confidentiality agreement they say forbids school officials from releasing records, potentially including public records that the university supplied to the NCAA. This is an excerpt from the local newspaper's column. It's a sneaky way to hide bad behavior. But nevertheless, it's happening more and more. It happened at Florida State in the early 2000s, when tutors were accused of giving improper assistance to athletes. The Associated Press sought the documents through a public records request, and the university tried this method to hide it. But the AP sued, and in that case, they actually won. They broke through the portal. It's just an example of how these entities just keep trying to find new ways to hide information. And they benefit from the fact that the laws haven't caught up to that. From the University of Florida's Bruckner Center for Freedom of Information, I'm Sarah Gannam, and you're listening to an episode of Why Don't We Know, the podcast that dives deep into data and comes out with real stories. Here's a rhetorical question. How do you go searching for something that is designed to be hidden, something that is inherently secret? After I first talked to Paula Levine, this question bugged me for weeks. How on earth am I supposed to find examples of times where public universities use these portals to hide documents if the whole reason they were hiding them is so that we cannot find them? I can't really file a FOIA request asking for times you used a third party to hide documents that are supposed to be public. Yeah, that would not go over really well. They would just simply respond back to them saying there are no responsive records. And, and we so would never would know. No, you yeah. would never know. So I went back to my research team and we put our heads together. Thanks to a recommendation from our executive producer, Frank Lamonti, we found a pretty interesting and really relevant example of the use of these portals, which isn't just happening at a handful of schools that have scandalous investigations. No, this is a lot of schools pretty much all the ones that have precedents. So yeah, all of them? It turns out that this is probably the most prevalent abuse of these portals. And it happens when a university is conducting a search for its next chief executive. It used to be very common for this to be an open practice, but in the last several years, that has shifted. And now it's much more common to conduct these presidential searches in secret. The Breckner Center's own research found that more than 70% of recent presidential searches have been closed, meaning no public vetting process. No one knows who the leader will be until the ink is dried and the moving trucks are loaded. You might imagine that this is not sitting well with faculty or students or taxpayers who are footing the bill for these high-paid public executives. That's what happened recently at the University of Colorado when a conservative former congressman was named president in a secret search. His voting record on gay marriage then became a contentious issue with students and faculty. So recently, people have started suing to try to get the resumes that are being considered in these secret searches so they can see the finalists before someone is named. It makes sense. Public university, public documents, resumes should be available to see. But that's where the portals come into play. Hey, Camille, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. 
Why don't we know reporter Camille Respis worked on this episode with me. Where are you recording right now? I'm actually back at the University of Florida in the College of Journalism and Communications in our news center. So you talked to a research duo that has spent a lot of hours digging into presidential searches. Yes, they worked together at George Mason University, tracking this increasingly secretive process. We estimate today that probably 80 percent or more of presidential searches are secret. That's Jim Finkelstein. He's retired from George Mason, but he had been the advice dean of one of the schools of policy and government. If you went back 15 years, public university presidential searches, probably none were secret. This is a new phenomenon as reporters and the public press more and more for transparency. The search firms press more and more for secrecy. They pin the push for secrecy on private search firms who are hired by public universities to conduct searches and bring them to the best candidates. The search firms have been working very hard to assure that they get as much work as they can. That's Judith Wild. She's a professor at George Mason and Jim's research partner. They're convincing the uh, universities and colleges that the only way to get the best uh, candidates is to go through a search firm and to make it a secret search. But keeping all of this under wraps requires some legal maneuverings, some creativity, because the resumes of candidates qualify as public records. Unless, of course, the university doesn't have possession of them. In many cases, the contracts for a search, the contract between the university and the, uh, the search firm, specifically state that the search firm owns the data. They collect the CVs, they collect the letters. As Jim explains, search firms will say to a university, If your state allows it, we'll own the data. People won't apply to your university. People will apply to our company. And then we'll do the initial sorting, and we will only bring you the most qualified candidates you know, for you for your university to review. The portal. The portal. There are frequently non-disclosure agreements that the local search committee needs to sign. Some of those are quite egregious, threatening loss of tenure, threatening jail. If you ever, ever, ever say a word about this search. And there are examples going to pretty extreme lengths. Some of the, the search companies are now putting information onto iPads. Then they go visit the local search committee and say, here's the information. They hand around the iPads, let people read it, and then pick up the iPads again. So again, there's nothing the local search search committee has in their hands that they could share with anyone. Camille, what is the reason for this push for more secrecy? That's a good question. It's not entirely clear if it's the universities that are asking search firms for more secret searches, or if it's the search firms that push for it in order to make themselves more valuable to universities. We've anecdotally seen evidence to support both theories. But what is clear is that there's a lot of evidence that secret searches are not in the best interest of the public. Judith gave an example. 
A couple of years ago in Oklahoma, there was a search at the University of Oklahoma, the, the flagship university in Norman. And in Oklahoma City, which is now maybe 20 miles away, there was a search for a president of a smaller private school, private college. Judith says the private school opted for an open public search and the public school opted for a private secret search. Both used the same search firm. The search at the University of Oklahoma was completely private. That person has failed. After 10 and a half, 11 months in the position, he retired. But a brand new president doesn't retire within a year. The search firms have created this myth because there is no evidence to support this, their claim that you will only get the top candidates if their names never become public. Because the top candidates, they claim that their names become public, they are at risk for losing their, their job. Their so, current job. Their current job. So here's why that isn't true. First of all, we know from data that's published by the American Council on Education, which does a periodic study of the university presidency, that in any given year of the university presidents that are appointed, fewer than 25% of them are coming to their new presidency from having been a president. Along with that, you know, the people who do become presidents, a provost, a dean, a vice president, you know, they're all looking to get promoted to the next job and they rarely get promoted at their university. So everybody knows they're in the job market. I think it's probably also important to mention here that no other job search at a university is conducted secretly. If you are applying for a position as a dean, provost, vice president, all those candidates are part of open, competitive public searches, and no one is complaining that those candidates are retaliated against for seeking promotions. Further, our own research backs up what Jim said, overwhelmingly. We found that candidates that were part of open searches still got to keep their jobs with no retribution, and many went on to get other executive-level jobs elsewhere. It sounds like the more plausible reason is that these search firms are worried that they will lose candidates, and therefore income. As Judith and Jim explained, it protects the privacy of presidential candidates. And these are people who are about to take very, very public jobs with very large public responsibilities. Well, I won't name the institutions or the individuals, but there are two new university presidents this year at very substantial public universities, both of whom we know were hired through secret searches. Uh, both of them uh, are named parties, defendants, in discrimination lawsuits. Uh, in, Is that what you want for a new president? <laughs> we don't know whether the claims have any validity, right? Um, you know, that's ultimately for you know, a judge or a jury to decide. Uh, and we know that people who are in leadership positions often get accused of many different things. But for you know, a case actually to make it into the courts uh, is something that faculty 
might want to know about. So in one case, uh, this president was accused of discrimination, discriminating against a gay faculty member and denying that person tenure on the basis of their uh, sexual orientation. Uh, that's a pretty big allegation. And you would think that a, uh, a faculty would want to know to ask a candidate questions about that case to make some judgments on their own, whether or not they think that that person's values are a match you know, for, uh, you know, for their campus. Uh, you know, and the other case is a similar kind of case, uh, you know, a claim of gender discrimination uh, for a faculty member who was disciplined for something. Well, you know, if someone's going to discipline a faculty member, faculty members care about that a lot. So not being able to meet these candidates and know who they are, uh, because once you find out the name of a candidate, there are all sorts of databases that almost any university faculty member can go into, any young reporter or journalist can go into and learn very quickly whether or not they're subject of a lawsuit, um, you know, whether or not uh, you know, they you know, have created a controversy on their campus. Um, but if you don't know who they are, you don't know whether the search firm is going to do that you know, kind of deep dive um, you know, on the candidate. Uh, and whether or not the search firm is going to say at the very end, oh, by the way, if we just found out uh, you know, something about her, that, you know, that she had uh, you know, three complaints from students against her. Uh, but we've looked at those now, and she's our only candidate, final candidate. And we're convinced that that was a long time ago, and it's not a problem now. Well, the search firm, of course, doesn't want to start the search over again, because that will cost them money. Do these search firms do adequate background checks? According to their research, only 51% of the contracts between universities and search firms say that the search firms will call references for these candidates. Only 43% say they will call references not listed by the candidate themselves. And only 40% say they verify that the degree the candidate says they hold, that they actually really hold it. That certainly helps any candidates who have something in their background that they'd rather not get out. You know, if you know the search firms don't do a lot of due diligence and that they want to have a secret search, then you may be able to get away with it. But once you're named, your new faculty are going to start searching. And as Jim said, in all likelihood, they'll find things out. And then, you know, there'll they'll be a lot to pay for that, you know, not, not knowing. A lot sure. of distrust. But what about the search committee at the university? Can't they fill in the gap and do a better job at vetting these candidates? Maybe, but think about it. You're on a search committee, you go into a room, look at an iPad full of resumes, and then hand it back after a set amount of time. It doesn't seem possible that you could have the same quality of deliberations by just glancing at documents on an iPad. You can't keep them or review them again later. Plus, as Jim explains, they don't have any ability to go online, do a Google search, you know, do any other kind of uh, you know, search you know, that you want. And in fact, many of these confidentiality agreements, you certify that you won't do that, that you won't do your own 
due diligence. You won't ask any questions of other people who might know this candidate uh, because they're asking that you only trust the information that is given to you by the search firm. And what's the point of that? Why are search firms asking people to do that? That's the million dollar question. <laughs> well, so, I mean, we can't answer, we, we don't know. We, we don't know. So let's say there are 400 plus presidential searches a year, you know, and that those things are, those searches, you know, maybe $150,000, $200,000 each, you know, it becomes, the presidential search industry becomes a pretty substantial industry in and of itself. This issue of, you know, private interests versus public interests, you know, is really the major question for these public institutions today. And search firms, you know, our sense is they have convinced more and more public institutions that should be protecting the public interests that the only way to protect the public interest is by protecting the private interests of the candidate, which, by the way, also protects the financial interests of the search firm. What do these search firms say in response to all of this? I reached out to about a dozen of them. Only one person agreed to talk to me for this podcast, and that is Jan Greenwood. She's the partner and co-owner of Greenwood Asher Executive Search and Associates, which for almost 30 years has conducted university searches at major universities, including the last three searches here at the University of Florida. And what did she say about all of the secrecy? Well, right off the bat, she wanted to reframe things a bit. What do you mean? I was asking her about secret searches. Um, Do you have clients um, who... um, asked to do open searches and then others who asked to do the secret or closed searches? There may be some confusion about the terminology. Okay. Um, A a search that is not open is one that is confidential. The candidates are confidential until the end. Um, A search that is open, the the candidates may be public knowledge from the beginning of the search or somewhere in during the process of the search. Confidential sounds a bit better than secret, but the outcome is the same. Essentially, yes. However, she was pretty adamant that her firm, at least, does not incentivize these confidential searches. She said that's totally up to the client. And that usually is governed by both the culture and tradition in the university as well as state regulation. Um, I think those are the key things to keep in mind. And she doubled down on this idea that somehow an open public search can deter the best candidates. There are examples uh, since 1992 where presidents of universities have looked at other presidencies and their name became public and they were fired for looking at another job. There are examples of presidents who had major donations agreed to by donors. And when the donors found out they were looking at another position, they withdrew the donation. There are examples where presidents were working with their legislators on special funding and legislators found out they were possibly going to make a move 
and the legislature held back um, from doing what was requested until they saw who the next president was. So it, it does tend to damage your reputation in your home university. But she also acknowledged that open searches can have benefits. Now the advantage to a public search uh, that does not have an element of confidentiality is obviously people in higher ed feel very good about being able to meet and greet candidates. Um, and that's something that universities need to consider. But there are pluses and minuses to each approach. Let's not lose sight here. University presidents are public executives of billion-dollar entities, and not only are they overseeing millions of taxpayer dollars, they are also paid in taxpayer dollars. And in many states, they are the highest-paid public executive. As Jim told Camille, There is no other public executive who is appointed so secretly. There's no cabinet member in a, you know, in a state executive branch. There's no... Uh, Supreme Court judge, uh, you know, the, the elected officials go through all sorts of public vetting, right, you know, on the campaign trail. Why is it that a university president is the only senior public executive who can be appointed secretly? Transparency is important in order for these public executives to carry out the public trust, and you can't carry out the public trust if your appointment was done in the shadows. Uh, and if your appointment was done in the shadows and you were fine with that, people aren't going to trust you to be transparent when you're leading them. Uh, you lead by example. This just happened this summer at the University of Wisconsin, where the lone finalist named in a secret search was forced to take back his acceptance of the position because of a public revolt over his secret hiring. Jim Johnson cited process issues in his two-sentence resignation letter, and the search committee chairman said it was because the criticism made it difficult for him to lead the way he had hoped to. There was another example at the University of Wyoming, when a president lasted less than five months. Bob Sternberg was hired in a secret search, arrived to a skeptical campus, and immediately clashed with faculty. Three deans and five administrators resigned during his short tenure. The whole thing was a big disaster. You're paying these people a million bucks a year. The public should have a say in that, and it shouldn't be left just to a small group of people uh, who are letting a for-profit company do most of the work on their behalf. Jim's comment that cultural secrecy does have a top-down effect We've seen that play out over and over again. For example, let's circle back to the beginning of this episode when I was talking to ESPN reporter Paula Levine about instances where portals are used to hide scandalous behavior. The most relevant current example is probably at North Carolina State. Said the NC State, among other schools, are involved in a federal investigation into the NCAA. Where, as we talked about earlier, received the request in January to turn over records. Many documents were only accessible on a protected NCAA portal. A federal criminal investigation is underway into recruiting violations. The allegations include a $40,000 payment to secure the 2015 commitment of a former five-star basketball guard, 
named Dennis Smith Jr. That's not an insignificant charge. And the fact that the university is being secretive about the whole thing, attempting to hide communications that should, by law, be public documents, well, that might not be so surprising when you consider North Carolina State's chancellor was one of the roughly 70% who was hired in a secret search. And the top candidate to lead NC State is described as a man who knows plants and people. Dr. Randy Woodson spent the last 25 years at a university that mirrors NC State's mission. William Randy Woodson had been the provost of Purdue when in 2010 it was announced that he would become NC State's chancellor. The other candidates were never made public. This whole thing speaks to a greater cultural problem in higher ed. State universities were meant to be accessible. They're supposed to be the people's schools. We're already seeing a move away from that mission as tuition prices creep higher and make public education less attainable for regular people. Now it seems like they're inching farther away from being truly public, too. Using portals as a way to shield information that should be public, this isn't a tactic that only public universities are guilty of. This is something we're seeing more and more across government agencies. A lot of the examples have to do with economic development. So times when cities strike deals with big companies like Amazon to bring in jobs, but they don't want to make public the details of those deals, like the tax breaks and other incentives. This happened recently in Minnesota, where city officials have been accused of using a cloud-based file-sharing system to hide data. The program they used is called The Box. Fitting name. But it's not always so obvious. Sometimes, like Paula Levine has witnessed, they file things through the NCAA portal. It's the NCAA. In a case we found in California, it was a brokerage firm. In another case, in Pennsylvania, it was a private health plan. There's a legal term called constructive possession, and it's often the argument made by people who are trying to get documents that are hidden in different kinds of portals. The constructive possession argument is that the university has the right and has the access to the documents, and just because they choose not to take possession of them for secrecy reasons shouldn't keep them from being made public when someone requests them. This argument doesn't always work. It did not work for Reuters journalists who wanted to see how the University of California's nonprofit foundation was investing money. According to California's open records laws, that's clearly public. But the university fought the request by saying the documents were on file with its brokerage firm, and essentially they just log in to look at them. They don't actually have possession. Even though Reuters' attorney argued constructive possession, the judge sided with the university and kept them secret. A few years before that, the University of Pittsburgh-affiliated hospitals tried a similar tactic, claiming certain documents about administration of Medicaid were housed by a private nonprofit health plan, not by the state, and therefore they were not public. In that case, the court found that to be a meaningless distinction, saying this, if this court were to conclude that only documents within an agency's actual physical possession were subject to disclosure, we believe that public records could be shielded from disclosure by placing them in the hands of third parties. We do not believe the General Assembly intended to provide a loophole for agencies to conceal otherwise public records from public view. 
The ruling goes on to say, there is undeniable access, and the university, quote, does not have the right to evade disclosure of public documents by keeping these records with the health plan. There is one more major portal that we haven't talked about yet, but it's pretty common. In fact, it's estimated that 75% of public universities in the United States have and use these as a way to create a place to stash information that they'd rather not have public. Nonprofit foundations are typically used as a fundraising arm of the university, a place where donors can send money intended for the institution, but in many cases anonymously. Private influence for a public place. That's next time on Why Don't We Know. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam, with additional reporting by Camille Respis. The associate producer is Tori Whitten. This episode was edited by Amy Fu. Music for this episode was composed by Daniel Townsend. Audio mixing was done by James Sullivan. The executive producer is Frank Lamonti. Why Don't We Know is a production of the Bruckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. A special thanks to the Hearst Family Foundation for providing the grant money that supported this reporting. For more information, please visit our website at www.whydon'twenow.org.